All right, now over to Ephesians chapter 2. The title for really every message that began with verse 11 through to uh, the end of the chapter could be called uh, the unity of the body. That that would be an appropriate title for um, what I think is impossible to be a single message. So that would be a good title for the series. The message, the title for this particular message uh, is Paul's high view of the church. And it's my hope that we'll get through verses 19 all the way to the end of Verse 22. Better start. The other day, Jennifer and Alina and I went to Bellevue to walk around the park. And as we're walking around, uh, I heard a distinct buzz above my head. It sounded like an angry hornet. And I looked up. And having recently acquired one a few a uh, few weeks ago, I said, "Hey, I think that's I think that's a Mavic. I think that's a drone." And I looked across the horizon, and about I don't know sixty yards away, I see this guy standing like this, and I'm like, "That's that's him. That's the drone controller." As we walk around, I go, "Hey," to this guy I've never met before. Don't know him from Adam. He was a different skin complexion than me. He probably had a name far different than mine. I have no idea what language he spoke. But on the basis that we had one thing in common, I had the courage and the confidence to draw near to this man and say, hey, is that a Mavic? And he's like, yep. And instantly I had a sense. This may sound silly. I had a sense of kinship with this man. I, I, I felt some some kind of bond with this man that on some level he and I were fellows. And those of you uh, who perhaps have uh, ridden motorcycles, I'm, you you might have felt the same way the first time you're going down the road and another bike is coming at you and you do the finger thing or the hand thing and the other guy does the hand thing and you you pass and you go yes we are brothers brothers of the wheel right John you know what I'm talking about you know what I'm talking about. Many people strongly desire a place where and other people to whom they feel they belong. And when you get a sense of that belonging, of that kinship, it is wonderful. It is wonderful. It is good. And maybe for you, uh, you, get a, you get a sense of fraternity, a, friends, a, a sense of fellowship, a sense of kinship in your book club Perhaps a, a crafters club, a poker group, a cr- CrossFit group, a Pokemon group, or a fantasy football group. Not judging. Not judging, Daniel. But the Bible tells us that we, we who are in Christ, by virtue of Christ's work, as a result of his cross work, we have a place where we belong. We have a people to whom we belong. We have a society, a program, a family to which we now inherently and most profoundly belong. And these these groups, these these entities to which we now belong, they are uh, definitely, vastly, immeasurably, uh, and in every way, greater and more wondrous and more glorious 
than any other society, any other family, any other program that we can be a part of as long as we're walking on this floating globe, or spinning globe, rather. The society to which we belong is God's kingdom, which we'll find in the beginning of verse 19. The family to which we belong is God's house, finishing up verse 19. And Lord willing, if we, if we press forward and go, don't get sidetracked, the program to which we belong is God's temple in verses 21 to 22. Let's read what, what Paul says. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit looking first at the at this first entity this first picture to which Paul brings up to which we belong he he says in he says in verse 19 uh, to to get the ball rolling this actually applies for all three he says in verse 19 so then you are no longer strangers and aliens and this is something Paul does frequently he's a teacher you know, there are certain things when, when you listen to people who have experience, I, 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 uh, maybe you caught this this morning when John was, was teaching Sunday school. There are certain mannerisms, there are certain techniques and strategies that effective teachers do. And Paul, being one such a teacher, he knows the importance of providing groundwork before giving conclusions. Before giving takeaways and applications and telling us what we ought to be doing. Very often, Paul will recount something God has done. He gives doctrine. He gives theology. Something that God has done on behalf of the church, on behalf of Christians. And then telling us what God has done, that serves as the, as the basis, as the incentive, as the motivation to then live out the implications and applications of, of what God has done. And I like to think that Paul was a father. We don't know this for sure, but I'd like to think he was a father because somewhere along the way, <coughs> he learned to anticipate a question that parents often hear upon telling their child to do this or do that. What is that question? Why? Why should I? Well, in verses 18 to 11, Paul has front-loaded the why. He has front-loaded the why to what he's about to tell us uh, in verse 19 and following. The why, in short, in summary, is you, we, were strangers and aliens. We were estranged from God's people. We were estranged from God's covenants, God's salvation, God's Christ, God's kingdom, God's hope. Most significantly, we were estranged from God himself. 
We were outsiders, we were strangers and aliens, as verse 19 clearly tells us. We were people who didn't belong. We were people who were just passing through. We had no rights. We had no privileges enjoyed by those who do belong. And the best that could have been said about you and I is that we were meandering through a good land that God had made and given to somebody else that unfortunately wasn't ours. And the best that we could do was meek out a a, a decent living for ourselves. And it was just a matter of time until we were taken out of this good place that didn't belong to us. And we were ushered into a place where we did belong. That likewise If you look at chapter 2, verse 3, being children of wrath, it was not a good place for us to end up to, end up in. And also in verse 12, we were hopeless. We were apart from Christ. We had no covenant. Where we were headed was not good, but it was appropriate for us. And as far as God's society, God's family, God's program were concerned, we were people just passing through. We didn't belong here. But you say, I was born into a Christian family. That doesn't save you. But Aaron, I'm an American. (laughs) That doesn't save you. Aaron, I, I vote Republican much as it pains me to say, that does not save anybody. You didn't belong, I didn't belong, we didn't belong because we were strangers and aliens with the one person that mattered most, and that was God himself. And furthermore, we were strangers and aliens to his people, but now Jesus Christ has brought us near. And by virtue of his cross work, he made it so that we do belong. Praise God. Praise God. Now, Paul paints a series of pictures, and this was all to get the ball rolling for for these three pictures, these three entities to which to which Paul draws our attention to as far as our belonging is concerned. The first is that you belong in God's kingdom. Now that you are in Christ, you belong in Christ, in God's kingdom. He says, you were no longer strangers and aliens, but, and this is, this is the contrast, this is telling us that, that something has changed. There, this is a pivot point. <clears throat> you were, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens with the saints. What is a citizen? A citizen is somebody who belongs to a nation rightfully, appropriately. A citizen has a right to be there as well as a right right to, to share in the privileges and the advantages afforded to citizens of that nation. 
They deserve, they have a right to be treated by a certain standard, uh, by a different standard than those who do not belong there. And, and we see an example of this uh, in a number of occasions where, where Paul's Roman citizenry comes out and comes to light. Being a, a Roman citizen afforded Paul the right to be to speak and to be heard rather than just be, merely being or just impulsively being thrown into jail. John. Way ahead of you. In two weeks, this will be gone. This happens like every six to nine months. Thank you, though. Being a, being a citizen allowed or afforded Paul uh, the right to expect to speak and to be heard and not just hauled into jail, which happened a lot. There were no Miranda rights for 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 non-citizens in the Roman Empire. And we, we see an example of this in, uh, in Acts 16.37 and following. Uh, the, this is the Philippi incident. He does get thrown into jail. And the following day, uh, when, when, it, when he's released, and it, um, uh, he wasn't released, the earthquake released him, but it, it, the, the magistrates and the authorities find out this man was a Roman citizen, and they freak out. This is a Roman colony with many Roman privileges and they just massively mistreated a Roman citizen. And if word of this gets out, the hammer of Caesar is going to fall on the city of Philippi. And so they're like, please leave, please leave, please leave. Because Paul's rights as a citizen were, were bypassed. They were violated. Likewise, um, well, not likewise, he is almost jailed in Acts. Uh, he's in Jerusalem. This is Acts 22, 28 to 30. He's about to be jailed. And he tells the centurion, hey, can I, can I, can I speak to you? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Jew of the city of Tarsus, a citizen. And uh, that, that gets him out. Likewise, in 25, 11, he exercises his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to who? Caesar. All people wanted the rights and the privileges of being a Roman citizen. And so by bringing up this word citizen, what Paul is saying here to, to Gentile believers in Ephesians 2.19 is that even though you used to be an outsider, you used to have no rights. You had no privileges to which you could rightfully and appropriately expect to come to your aid. Now that you're in Christ, now that you have been made part of his kingdom, you have not some rights, not most rights. You have all the rights. You have all the privileges that a citizen in God's kingdom enjoys. You are not an under-citizen. You are a fellow citizen. Not with the Jews, but with the saints. Far better group to be a fellow citizen of. You are a fellow citizen. You're not here among God's people with a green card. You're not here for, for a time. You're not here temporarily. You don't just get to enjoy the ride for a little bit, and then when time's up, you have to pack up your bag and go back home. 
Why? Because your old home is not your home any longer. God's kingdom, God's people, where you are now is now your home. And other believers, in, in this context, it would have been the Jewish believers, those who were who first received the gospel, those who, uh, as John told us this morning, they were the they were the ones who established most of the churches alongside the apostles. It is with them and it is with the long line of saints. The long line of saints, Father Abraham, David, Isaiah, and on and on and on with them. You stand as a fellow. And standing with them as, an, as a fellow, you share the same position, the same privilege, the same rights, the same duties, and the same expectations as any citizen in the kingdom of God has. There, there are no tears in this, in this kingdom, in this society, in this people. There's no caste system. There's no ranks. There's no second class citizens. No one has the right or the prerogative to look down on you. I tell you, this would mean a lot if you were a slave, if you were a Roman slave hearing these words. If you had been owned by somebody your entire life, if that was all you knew, just imagine how blessed it is to hear you are a fellow citizen with the saints. No one is more important than you among your fellows. Obviously, Christ is. No one is higher and mightier and more important than the other. There is no segregation. There is no discrimination. There is no preferential treatment. No one plays favorites. Has has anyone not been on the, the losing end of someone playing favorites? It hurts. It hurts to be the last person chosen in dodgeball or not chosen at all. Your family line, your lineage doesn't make you any more prestigious than the next fellow. And likewise, no one's lineage makes them more important than you. Your net worth doesn't lift you above anyone else. No one else's cultural background gives them an advantage. The good or bad stigma associated with your, with your language, with your culture, with your skin tone, skin tone no longer applies. All the things that men on the earth quabble about and divide themselves over and go to war over, those things don't matter any more. You are on equal footing with the saints, being that you are now a fellow citizen with them. You belong with them because you are one of them and you are one with them. We were all brought in the same way. We all have the same Lord. We all bend the knee to the same King. We all receive the same love and approval from the same Father. We saw last week we have the same access to the same Father in the same Spirit. In Christ, every single one of you belong in God's kingdom and you belong to God's people, the saints. Again, you are one of them because you are one with them.
You belong in God's kingdom. Now, as a side note, being a fellow citizen with the saints, being made equal with them in, in this regard doesn't, doesn't mean that we eliminate the roles and functions that we are, orig- that we are individually given. In this very same uh, book, in the same text, uh, later in uh, 6.5, he'll tell slaves and servants, be subject, submit yourself to your earthly masters. <clears throat> and in a passage I am um, anticipating with sobriety, in Ephesians 5.22, he tells wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. He says, why? Because in, uh, in the following verse, the, the husband is the head of the wife. In Ephesians 6.1, listen up, everybody. In Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents. Christians who are citizens of an earthly kingdom are still called, says 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17 and Romans chapter 13. We are still called to, to respect and submit ourselves and to subject ourselves to the local authorities, whether they being the, the police or the governors or the kings. Here's the caveat. As long as they do not uh, call upon us to disobey the higher authority, who is the one who put them in the position of authority in the first place. And I think the, I think the, the basis for this, I think where, where Peter and Paul got this from began, and maybe there's multiple passages, but began with Exodus 1. Pharaoh gave a command to the slaves of Egypt. Kill the children. Moses writes in Exodus 1, the midwives, because they feared God, they disobeyed Pharaoh. And they are commended for it. Likewise, in Acts 4 and 5, when the, when the Jewish authorities command the apostles, stop preaching in the name of Jesus, the apostles say, it is better for us. You be the judge. Who should we obey, God or men? Even within the Trinity, there is an order of roles. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Holy Spirit. Yet at the end of the day, none of them are any less God than the one to whom they subject themselves to. They are all equally God. They have equal essence. They have equal personhood. Likewise, that, that quality of, uh, that equality of essence, that equality of, of personhood, that equality of spiritual standing, and the value that each and every individual saved soul has, every soul who is redeemed in Christ has, the fact that we are all equal, and yet at the same time have differing roles and functions, that is a reality seen in God's people. And someone may ask, well, why, why are there different roles? Why, why does God give us different roles, different functions? I think it's so that God's work in us can be seen in a, in a variety of different means and opportunities that he provides to each of us individually. There, I mean, think about it. There are places that I can go. There are ways that I can serve the body. There are ways that I can serve other people and edify other people that you aren't 
that, that, that aren't given to you. There are opportunities given to me that you don't have. There are opportunities given to Jeremy up in Sultan that I don't have because I don't live in Sultan. Daniel works at a school. Jack, how many kids do you see on a, on an annual basis? There are places I can go, ways that I can serve that, that others cannot. There are ways that, uh, there are places others can go, ways that they can serve that I cannot. I have skills and talents and opportunities that you don't. You have skills, talents and opportunities that I do not. And we're going to cover this again in, in the closing verses, but I want us to see at the end of the day, while we are on equal footing with one another, we are gifted differently. There are different roles, that do, there are different functions, and those things play along together on the playground. They don't have to contradict each other. And while we are on equal, while we are on equal footing with one another, we are fellow citizens with each other and with all saints. Again, we, I, you, all, belong in the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. The second entity to which we belong, or the second picture that Paul brings up, to which we belong, is God's house. God's house. You are fellow citizens with the saints and, says verse 19, and are of God's household. Now, he began with a kingdom. He began with, with citizenry and the, and, and the picture of a kingdom or a nation or a, or a people. And, and he is now progressing towards a more personal, a more intimate picture. I mean, think about it. You can be fellow citizens with somebody. You can, you can live with somebody in the same town and have nothing to do with them. You can be civil towards another person and hate their guts. But here Paul says, in effect, that you aren't merely citizens with the saints. Yes, you are fellow citizens with the saints, but that, that is not enough. It goes, the truth goes further and deeper than that. You're not just co, uh, 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 uh residing alongside na- that with, you're not just residing alongside them as you would neighbors, but you are residing with them as you would family. You are now family with them. <coughs> Beloved, this is how near we have been brought to one another in Christ Jesus. We're not just close enough so that we can see each other occasionally at IGA or the post office or Stapa. It's not just enough that we wave at each other when we see each other and then go on our merry way. We are, we have been brought close enough to each other that as it were, spiritually speaking, we are under the same roof and we share the same blood. He's already said we all have access to the same Father. I am as close to the Father as Sarah is. And Bethany and John. And y'all are just as close as me. First John three one says this see how great a, a love 
What amazing love, what incredible love the Father has on us that we would be called, watch this, children of God. And such we are. Now, some of you may have multiple children. Some of you do have multiple children. All of your kids are equally your kids. Not, no one child is more your child than any other child. We are all brought in together. And it was the same supernatural divine work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration through which, in which, by which we are all born. I entered the family that way. You entered the family that way. Every saint enters the family that way. And so, in like manner, every, everyone who is a fellow citizen in the kingdom, with the result that we are fellow brothers and sisters in the household and the family of God. Now, what does this mean? I mean, Paul's just stated <coughs> truth. He has stated fact. He has given us indicative fact. We are of the household of God. What does this mean? Well, it means that we all live under the same rule and the same provision and the same protection and the same blessing and the same care and the same nurturing and the same love of a father in whose house we belong and have been made part of. That's why I said a couple weeks ago, in our salvation, you don't just gain You don't just gain God, as if that's not enough. It certainly is. You don't just gain God, but you have gained one another. You gain In in Christ Jesus, you gain one another. And it, it would profit your soul just every now and then just to look around and thank God for the people that that he has in Christ brought near to you. You should... With them, with one another, you share with every saint the ultimate kinship. In every believer, you have gained a brother or a sister to whom you will enjoy familial closeness and fellowship and kinship forever. That's how close Jesus Christ brought Jew and Gentile, who I would remind you had incredibly significant differences and grievous evils between them. They had severe grievances between them. Christ Jesus brought them together. How much more has he brought us? And there's great unity between the people of God. We aren't merely a society that shares a similar qualities and values, similar perspectives. Beloved, in Christ, we have been made family. Being a family, we love one another. I mean, there are certain principles there are certain truths that exist within a family unit that you have with those who are your family that that you just can't quite expect to have and if you do it's a blessing but you can't expect to have it from people who aren't when your family you're committed to one another 
family stick sticks together. What do they say? Blood is thicker than water. Being family, we love one another. We look out for one another. Being family, we learn, we strive, we put effort to, we commit ourselves to putting our differences aside and working to dwell in harmony. Because what we have one another is more than just a civil domestic arrangement. We, 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 we aren't just brought near to each other. We're not just abiding near each other by happenstance, by, by mere circumstance. In Christ, we have been made parts of a greater whole. I want to drive this home. You belong with each other. You all belong to each other. If there's, if there's one unfortunate, you know, we, we enjoy a lot of freedoms and a lot of liberties in the United States, and I'm grateful for the nation we have. If there's one caveat, I would say it's the, it's the rugged individualism. We have lost what it means to, to love the people and to cherish and to value the people that God has put in our spheres. We have been made parts of a greater whole and we belong together. There's something fundamentally wrong when the motivation to be a part of a church when the motivation or the incentive to, to attend church and go to church is merely and, and only in a selfish sense, what can I get out of it? What will this church give me? And there, there is a sense in which we need to answer that. We, we do need to ask that question with sobriety and with wisdom and prudence. You, you do need to have wisdom in selecting a good church that will feed you the word of God. But, but making a choice to go to this church or that church solely because of what you get out of it. Something's wrong there. Something's wrong there. Imagine, imagine having somebody in your life. Imagine being married to someone. And their, their sole incentive to be with you was because of what they get out of the relationship. Not, I mean, it, it, I, Jen and I just watched a marriage. Uh, it had to be live streamed yesterday, but we saw them exchange their, their wedding vows. And they committed to loving and serving and giving themselves to the other person. That's the basic marriage covenant. You don't get married so that you get. You get married so that you can give. It's the same in the church. Imagine, just imagine that being with someone only because of what they can give you, only what you get out of it. And in the same way, when people leave the church, when it's easy for people to withdraw, when it's easy for people to leave, to pack up their bags and to go, I think that says something. Think about this. It's the rotten tooth that is easily pulled out with no pain. And when that happens, when, when, a, when a part of the body is pulled off relatively easily, easily, with little to no pain, I have to wonder how healthy was the connection to begin with. What I want you to see is that Paul has a very high view of the church. Paul has a very elevated, very exalted view 
of this corporate entity, this corporate body that God, through Jesus Christ, has molded. Paul has a high view of the church, and I think I am confident we should as well. And we should treasure every opportunity we have with being with one another. I hope you know, I hope each of you know that I am grateful for for your presence here. I'm grateful for you being here. I'm grateful for the contributions each and every one of you make. I am grateful for the opportunity to likewise serve you and bless you. Paul has a high view of the church, and so should we. So not only do we... 14. Yeah, I can do this. Not only do we belong in God's kingdom, not only do we belong in God's house, but we belong in God's temple. We belong in God's temple. Verses 20 to 22. And this is... The most important of Paul's pictures, it certainly carries the most weight. Paul dedicates three verses to it. In describing us as the temple of God, Paul Paul tells us two things. He unfolds two things. He unfolds the source of the church, and then he unfolds the, the purpose of the church. The source of the church and the purpose of the church. The source of the church is God's revealed truth concerning Jesus Christ. Paul says that we've, as the house of God, we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, when you see those that word prophets, you might be inclined to think that Paul is referring to the Old Testament prophets. He's not. He will say again in this book, Ephesians 3, 5 and 4, 11, he will refer to the prophets and he speaks of them or he presents them uh, as as men whom God was supplying to the church in Paul's day. So these were men who these were prophets who ministered alongside the apostles when as of yet, and we, I, think, I think you touched on this earlier, when as of yet the canon of Scripture had not been completed and closed. Together, the apostles, one, those who, who Christ himself had personally appointed and authorized to speak for him as his representatives, as his ambassadors, with the, with the apostles and the New Testament prophets, who spoke for God, much, as, much in the same way that the Old Testament prophets did, these two groups, likewise, in the same way, dispensed the foundation for the church, <laughs> that which the church was built upon. And we will see it, is not, it was not their personal take on things. It was revealed truth, objective, revealed Objective, unchanging, concrete, not sourced from men, but sourced from God revealed truth. It was not their personal whim, their personal take on things. It was what God gave them to the church that they gave to the church to build and establish the church. Peter says this in Second Peter 1, 20-21. 
Know this first of all. That, that kind of elevates, that, that, that raises the stakes a little bit. Know this first of all, that <coughs> no prophecy, none, not, not one, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. What do you mean, Peter? For or because no prophecy was ever made. And, and this, this word for made, it's the idea of, of carrying something, bringing it forth, uh, kind of like uh, uh, either wind uh, uh, carrying or pushing along a boat. It can also be used to, uh, of, of carrying uh, a solid object or a woman carrying a child. No prophecy was carried or brought forth by an act of human will. But... Men themselves were moved. It's the same word. The men were carried along. The men were brought forth. The men were pushed by the Holy Spirit. Yet it was the men who spoke from God. So the men are the mouthpiece. But ultimately, the revealed truth of Scripture didn't come from, as Peter says, their own private interpretation. God was using them. He was bringing them along, carrying them along, propelling them exactly as they needed to be propelled so that they would give what He wanted them to say. It is the teaching of Jesus. It is... This revealed truth concerning Jesus and what he taught and what he revealed and the declaration that he is the Christ and that he is the Lord and that he called men of all nations to repent and the forgiveness of sins that come in his name and the, and the coming of his kingdom. It is the preaching and teaching of all that. That the apostles and these prophets likewise gave it is all that 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 they proclaimed that they taught they preached that they explained that established and built the church the source of the church is not men the source of the church is not to be found in flesh now i'm going to i'm going to get in in a couple chapters I'm going to get into uh, uh, this issue of, of the prophets and the apostles and how they're the foundation again. So I had more I want to say about how the world looks at the word and, and what they think about Scripture, but I, I need to get us out in a timely manner. The source of the church is not men. It was not the apostles. But but Aaron, it says... Uh, it says that, that they were uh, established on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, Paul goes on to tell us what he means by it. It wasn't the men themselves. It was their teaching. It was their, their preaching. It was, their, it was the revealed truth of the message that they gave concerning whom? Christ Jesus. Paul says, <coughs> it was... Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ Jesus is the center of it all. It's all about him. He is the cornerstone. <coughs> the cornerstone. What is the cornerstone? 
Cornerstone was the most preeminent stone. It was the most important stone. The cornerstone was crucial to the construction of the building because uh, it was crucial to the construction of the foundation, which itself is crucial. Anybody who's ever built anything understands your foundation is utterly crucial to the to the to the stability and the quality of whatever it is you're making. The number of times I've taken a couple of two by fours out and a couple of screws, a couple of nails and a hammer and a drill and I put something together. And because the foundation was wonky, the thing I have at the end, it all teeter totters. My OCD really does not like it when, when something that I make teeter totters. And I'm glad this is really this is really stable. But the, the foundation is utterly crucial to the stability and the quality of the construction of the whole. The, the, the cornerstone set the lines. It, it set the lines. It, it, set, <laughs> it set the shape uh, and the contours for the building. It, it, the balance of the building rested on the cornerstone. The balance and the angles and everything rested upon the cornerstone. The quality of the building, the durability of the building, everything rested upon the careful and precise placement of this choice quality stone. If it was off, if it had imperfections, if it was compromised, the whole building suffered. In the same way the cornerstone was crucial for the building, Christ is utterly, utterly, utterly crucial to the church. Because as the building rests upon the cornerstone, the church rests upon her cornerstone and is guided and shaped and molded by her cornerstone. You take away Christ Jesus and the whole thing collapses. And that is a sad commentary on a number of denominations and no small number of churches that have substituted and traded the biblical Jesus for a counterfeit Jesus thinking that they were uh that 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 their counterfeit Jesus had something something to offer public opinion and when this happens when the authority and the teaching of Christ himself, when he as the foundation is traded for opinions and preferences and fads of the culture, that denomination, that church goes into decline until it disappears altogether. And as another said commentary is that Jesus himself warned the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. He said, you have lost your first love. Repent or your candle will be extinguished. And you know what? It was. Remove Christ and the whole thing collapses. The source of the church, the source of the temple of God is the revealed truth of Christ himself. What's the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of the church. What is the purpose of this entity to which we belong, having been made part of it? Well, the purpose 
that we have been made part of it is so that God's consummate attributes, so that God's qualities, so that God's character can be made known through you and you and you and you and you and me and every other one, every other believer. The reason God saves us and makes us a part of his temple, a part of his church, is so that he might be made known through us. In, in layman's terms, it's to glorify himself. And God is glorified as it is revealed how his hand and how his power and how his grace has been at work in each and every one of us. Paul continues, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit temple think about what, what what was the temple the temple was where god's presence was the temple was where his glory was displayed the temple was where he was made known where his ways were taught where people could come to learn of god and hear his word the temple was where men could come men of all nations anyway even could come and pray the temple was where men could come and draw near to God because that's where God was. That's where God could be known. Paul is saying, in effect, you corporately. And yes, there's a sense in which we are the temple of the Holy Spirit as individuals, but corporately, beloved, you serve these very same functions. That should blow you away. You read about what the temp, the purpose that the temple served in the Old Testament. Corporately, you serve the very same purposes. Paul saying, in effect, you have been brought together in Christ. You have been made the place where God dwells and where he can be made known to the world. As you come together and as you stand together upon the foundation of Christ's work and Christ's person with him as your chief cornerstone and with him having given you shape and contours and design with him holding you in place, you corporately manifest and display the glory of God. Again, I'll say, Paul has a very high view of the church, and so should you, and so should I. This corporate body is where God's glory can be found, it is where it is shown, it is where it is revealed, and it is where it is primarily displayed. And I think that's an argument Paul makes in Romans chapter 8. I love this. Paul says, being fitted together being fitted together. And this, this appeals to the fact that we are different from each other in some respects. Yes, we are saved together. We have the same access to the same Father. We have been made one with each other, but that doesn't mean that we are made into each other. We are one, yet at the same time, we remain different. 
We are unique. We are special. And it, it occurred to me in my prep for this that from a naturalistic point of view, from a humanist point of view, who says we are nothing, you are nothing but cosmic space dust floating through space, to say that someone is special is utterly meaningless and baseless. From a purely scientific point of view, do you know what you call something special, something unique? You call it a mutation from a scientific point of view. But by God's design, by God's purpose, and by God's work, each of us, each and every one of us, (coughs) fit together into this corporate entity that God intends to display His glory. I would appeal to Paul's image of the of the church being a body in 1 Corinthians 12, each each person being a different part, the hand being able to do what the foot can't do, and vice versa, unless you're one of those acrobatic people who can walk on their hands. In that case, you're just weird. But for normal people, the hand can do what the foot can't do, the foot can do what the ear can't do, the ear can't do what the kidney can do, and so on. And so on and so on, all the way down the line to every last part, with the obvious takeaway being there are no worthless parts in Christ's body. Every part, every person, every believer saved and brought into the church is inherently made a part of his body, inherently made to be special And a purposely crafted stone that is, mark this, put precisely where the master craftsman says it needs to be. And when it's finished, it will be an absolute marvel for all of creation to behold. So, beloved, as we close, we we have to stop thinking of what it means to be saved as simply simply having our sins forgiven, simply getting out of hell, simply going to heaven. And yes, those things are glorious in and of themselves, but Paul has been, ever since the very first, uh, ever since verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul's desire, Paul's great ardent desire is that we would think more profoundly of our salvation. And specifically here, he wants us to see the church in a greater and more profound level that's close Lord Jesus I thank you Lord for the fact that you have made every one of us a part of your kingdom you you have graciously and kindly and magnanimously bestowed upon us rights befitting a citizen of of your kingdom. And more than that, you have made us children of God. You have made us beloved of God. You have given us the right to cry out, Abba, Father. And even more than that, even more than that, you have made us corporately the temple of God, where God dwells, where God himself dwells.
And I pray that each and every one of us would be comforted and excited and rejoice to think that they are being uniquely worked upon, uniquely crafted, uniquely placed with skills and talents and opportunities designed specifically for them. I pray that what Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, that there are works prepared beforehand for each and every one of them to walk in, that they would be excited to know that they have been raised up for a purpose in that regard. Thank you, Lord, for, for giving Paul this elevated, exalted view of the church. Help us to, help us to capture it. Amen.